Uh, I want to ask you a question uh, to start off with. Here we go. Okay. Imagine your life today. What would your life be like if you had absolute, complete confidence in God? All right, so this is something I've been thinking about a little bit this summer. Like, what would it look like if you had absolute confidence in the existence of God and the goodness of God and, and who God is according to how he's revealed himself in Scripture? And, and what if you had absolute confidence that God knows you personally and is intimately involved in your life and knows everything that's going on and everything that is going to go on? And, and what if you had absolute confidence that God is working on your behalf in all things? Like, imagine what it would be like if you had absolute confidence when you're going through something tough, when you're going through a trial, a difficult circumstance. Maybe some of you, you can think of something right now. And would, would you experience that differently if you had absolute confidence that in the middle of that thing, that God is bigger than that challenge and bigger than that issue or that financial or health or relational? How would you experience that if you had absolute confidence that God is bigger than that thing? Or, or, or how would you experience, for instance, a temptation? If you were facing a temptation to sin or to compromise or do an end run around the will of God, um, how would you experience that if you had absolute confidence that, that God, in fact, can meet your legitimate need and that you can count on him? You don't have to do an end run. You don't have to sin in order to get what you want in life, but you can trust that what God has for you is better than anything that you would get through sin or giving in through a temptation. Or imagine what it would be like if you, even in the middle of like a great time in life, like imagine you had way more money than you needed or more free time than you needed, more vacation, more square footage, more, more hair on your head than you really needed. Like imagine if you had that, because you know that for some people, when they have an abundance, that actually ends up to be a not good thing for them. Because sometimes they forget that they're dependent on God and they start to make bad decisions. But imagine that even if things were going just awesome in your life, that you had this absolute confident belief that God is in control and that you can trust him in your life. And I, you know, I'm not talking about everything going great in your life. Jesus was, was pretty clear about that. In this world, you will have trouble. He said, but, but take heart because I have overcome Jesus said, I've overcome the world. And so that would mean that even when things aren't going the way you'd hope they would, when they're difficult, you still have this trust in God. You have this rock solid confidence that he's working on your behalf. And, and imagine what it would be like to have no anxiety in life. Like when you're going through a trouble or a trial that you'd have no anxiety about your relationship, no fear in your marriage, no fear for your kids, no fear for your health or for your finances or for your future. That there was no anxiety. And I, I know sometimes when we hear things like that, we think, well, that's ridiculous and that can't really be what God has for us. But I'll tell you, as I read the scripture, I see, I, I see this kind of picture that God has in mind for us, a, a life that's built on absolute trust. You see, I really believe that that is where God has always intended for us to go as human beings, is that we would enter into an absolute trust or confidence in our relationship with God. 
This morning, I'm going to use the word trust and the word confidence and the word faith. And I'm just going to use those synonymously. So whenever I use one word, just think of the others. In fact, they're all very tied together grammatically in the New Testament, the word trust and the word faith. I'm going to use the word trust a lot because I, I just for me, it has a certain connotation to it. But when you think back, when you go all the way back to the beginning of creation, and God creates a universe and God creates the planet and he, he creates life on the planet. And he creates humanity, creates Adam and Eve, and, and why did he create them? I mean, what was, what was the whole purpose between them and him? And as I look at that, it becomes pretty clear. God had always intended that people would live in a trust or, or have a faith relationship with him. You look at Adam and Eve, God created them, he put them in the garden, right? And he said, so here's life, here's all the stuff I have for you, here's stuff to do and stuff to get involved in and stuff to think, and I'm going to come down and we're going to have a relationship with one another, and I'm going to walk with you, but then there's something over here and I don't want you to go there and I don't want you to eat from there, all right? That's off limits, don't do that. You need to trust me. I mean, isn't that what he was saying? You're going to have to trust me on this. Satan comes along has a little conversation with Adam and Eve, what does he basically say to them? He basically says, I don't think you can trust God. I think that God is holding out on you. I think that, that, that God doesn't have your best interest at heart. When Adam and Eve sin, basically what is it that they did? See, I believe it isn't that they just, they, they just checked off a, a sin box that they weren't supposed to check off. And a lot of times I think, well, the thing, that, the thing that separated them from God was that they sinned. But my question, the thing I've really wrestled with a lot is, but why, what, why was it a sin and what was underneath all that? And the answer is simple. It's that they decided there was some area where they, they did not trust God. They would not live in a trusting faith relationship with him. They decided he didn't have their best interest at heart. And so they didn't trust him and they sinned. And I would just say, as, as I've thought about this, that kind of undergirds every sin that you will ever be involved in. It's a breaking of trust with God that leads to sin. And that is the, at the heart of every sin. That there's some area in life where you've decided you cannot trust God and so you're gonna have to do something else outside of the will of God. And ever since then, God has been working throughout redemptive history to repair, to restore that relationship with us that we were always intended to have with God. And you can go through the Old Testament and see story after story after story where this plays out. For instance, you have Israel and their slaves in, in the land of Egypt. Remember that? For 400 years, they're slaves. And then God takes heed of their cry and he reaches down and basically metaphorically, he takes their hand and he leads them out of Egypt. He establishes a relationship with them. He says, you can trust me. There's going to be some plague and some ugly stuff and parting the Red Sea and all that. Take my hand and we're going to have a relationship. I'm going to lead you out and you're going to be my, my people. And I'm going to show the world what it can look like for people to have a relationship with God the Father. And so he leads them out of, of uh, Egypt. And then once he gets them out of Egypt, then now that they have a relationship together, he gives them what we call the law. And basically what he's doing is he's saying, now that we have a relationship with one another, I want to show you how to live. How do you live day in and day out with a God that you trust, with a God that, that, that you have faith in? Well, here's what it looks like. A lot of people think that the law was just about the law. It's just, it's just about keeping the law and all that stuff. But I think that what it really comes down to is the law describes what it's like to have a faith relationship with God. Remember, the relationship precedes the law. 
You go into the New Testament and you see the same thing. Jesus is traveling around and he's preaching the gospel to people. The gospel is not a, here's what you have to do to get to heaven list. He's not walking around with a clipboard and going, here's the rules and the regulations. And if you tick off every box and you do what you're supposed to do, then you'll be acceptable to God. Instead, what Jesus does is he goes around and he's preaching why people will never, ever be acceptable to God in, in their own efforts and in behavior. Basically, what he says is, you have a problem. Your problem is that your sin has separated you from your God. And again, I'm reading a little bit redemptively into all this, but I think what Jesus would say is that underneath every sin you'll ever commit is this untrust in God. Why would a person ever have the need to be proud? It's because they don't trust God. Pride is where I say, I don't trust God to lift me up and to put me where I need to be in life, so I'm going to do it myself. I'll do it by putting other people down and I'll elevate myself. That's what leads to greed, is when we don't trust God. Don't trust God to take care of my needs, so I'm going to be greedy and get what I need to get. That's where addictions come from, lust comes from, hateful words come from, all of that stuff. So Jesus is going around and he's preaching that we are sinners and that our sin has separated us from our God. But then Jesus is inviting us back into an intimate relationship with God. And the way that we get there is through him. It's through his life and his death and his resurrection. And basically what Jesus says is this, right? He says, if you'll trust, if you'll trust that I am the way to the Father, if you lay down your efforts and lay down the rules and lay down the trying and being good enough and all that stuff, and you'll trust in what I've done for you on the cross, if you'll trust in me, then you can have a restored relationship with the Father. So just as our relationship with God was broken through a lack of trust or faith, It can be restored through an act of trust and it can be fueled, and this is what we're going to talk a lot about in the series, it can be fueled through living by trust. Now I kind of have two categories there. There's the idea of being restored or, or an initiation of faith in God, and then there's the fueling of the faith. Now in this series, we're going to focus on the second one, but I want to kind of explain this. See, I think God wants to do two things with faith. First of all, he wants to initiate us back into a relationship with him, and that relationship comes through faith. Now, I'll just tell you that after, uh, after going to Bible college and going to seminary and, and many years of being in the pastor and studying, Uh, This is still an area for me that's just a little bit amazing and full of awe and mystery and I don't fully understand it all. I know there's some really different views on this, but when I look back and and I look, I was 15 years old. I uh, I grew up in a house where we never read the Bible, where I'd never been to church, where I'd never heard the gospel, where we didn't even, you know, there was not even any belief in God. And then as a freshman in high school, God, in, in a very short time, surrounded me with some Christians and got a book into my hands and I read the book and I presented the gospel and I can remember where I was and the time of day it was and exactly what happened when I went from a place of unfaith, of not trusting in Jesus for my salvation, to trusting in Jesus for my salvation. Now, I really wrestle with, like, how does somebody who's completely dead, someone become spiritually alive, and there's just some awesome kind of things involved there, and I'm not going to get into that right now, but I can remember that time when suddenly there was a faith or a trust that was initiated in me, and I moved from not trusting in Christ to trusting in Christ. 
And, and, and that changed everything for me. But now, here's something that didn't happen for me. It's not like I gave my life to Christ that night, and then the next morning I woke up and I had an email. Well, that would have been weird because it was 35 years ago. But I didn't have like a postcard that said, hey, congratulations, you, you now have faith relationship with God, and your house has been reserved in heaven. Here's your confirmation number. Have a great life, and when you die, we'll see you in heaven. Right? That's not really the way it works. In fact, what I noticed is I started reading the Bible. And I started going to church and hanging around Christians and finding out that, that once we come to faith in Christ, it's not like faith is this thing like God says, okay, now I'm going to give you some faith and you're going to trust in me or however that works. And now you're connected to me and you get to get out heaven when you die. But, you know, faith is just a thing for someday when you die and go to heaven. What I see in scripture is that faith, once we have faith in Christ, that becomes something that God wants to grow he wants to grow. It's, uh, sometimes we talk about faith like a muscle. God takes that muscle, if you notice this, and he likes to stretch it, and he likes to bend it, and he likes to strengthen it. He, he, he likes to do that in our life. What he does is he does stuff like this. God comes along, and then once we place our faith in Christ, God will say things to us through the Spirit like, it's really great that you trust in Jesus for salvation and for heaven when you die, but would you be willing to trust him, say, like in your relationship today? Or would you like to trust him? Would you perhaps trust him in this temptation that you're dealing with today? Or in this financial thing that you're dealing with today? And what we find is that faith isn't just something that gets us to heaven. Faith is something that that we can use to follow Jesus so that it's not just like, well, trust gets us to heaven one day, but, but literally we live by faith or we walk by faith. That is that we trust in God every moment of every day. That's how we experience the full life. In fact, in John 10.10, 10, Jesus is, is talking and he says this. In fact, a lot of times we, we really read this, this first part of the verse where he says, I came that they might have, he's talking about us, I came that they might have life and notice and have it what? All right, you can say that again. I came that they might have life and have it, or have it, some translations say, to the full. He says, I I came that people could have, not just heaven when they die, but have an absolute abundant life right here and right now. And then as I was reading that this week, I I kept reading and I came to the next verse, which we don't often think of when we think of it as context, but notice what he says. He goes on, he says, I am the good shepherd. So Jesus says, you guys are like sheep and I'm like the shepherd. I'm the one who takes care of you. He says, The good shepherd, notice, the good shepherd lays down his life. He lays his life down for the sheep. And as I read that, it kind of struck me. I thought to myself, you know, when Jesus talks about living the abundant life, I see a connection there. Part of the abundant life comes when I really believe what he said. That I really believe that he laid down his life for me. And if he laid down his life for me, can't I trust him, not just for heaven, but for today? and for my relationships, and my problems, and my issues. In Hebrews chapter 11, we sometimes call that the, the hall of faith um, chapter of the Bible. In Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews says this. He's going to give us a little definition of faith. Now, now, faith, two things, is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Very interesting literary device here because he uses the word assurance and the word conviction, but he marries them with kind of uncertain terms. So he says faith is an assurance that is a a confident uh, or a confidence or a steadiness. So it's interesting. He says faith is a confidence or a steadiness of things hoped for. He's he's kind of playing here. He's like it's a confidence in things something you're hoping for, right? You know what it is to hope for something. You're not exactly sure. You don't 
totally have it nailed down, but you're hoping. So you have this confidence or this steadiness of life in what you hope for in this conviction. That word conviction means something that's based on proof or evidence. You have a conviction of things you haven't seen. So in other words, as I read scripture, what I think the writer's saying here is that as you go through your life, as you think about your life and, and your birth and where God puts you and you look at, you know, the, the providential situations in life and the relationships you've had and the things you've learned and you look at creation and, and all of that, he says, all of this becomes proof or evidence and something that you haven't actually seen. And that's what faith is. Now, why is faith this, this kind of what almost feels like a visceral thing? Why is it so in, is amazingly important to us. Why should it make us sit up in our chairs? Why should it make us pay attention? He says in verse six, this is why. Because without faith, notice this, without faith it is impossible to what? That's huge. Without faith it is impossible to please God. That, that, that idea of pleasing God means to be fully satisfied or entirely gratified, right? In other words, without trusting God, it's impossible to entirely please God. It says, for whoever would draw near to God. So that's talking about getting relationally close to God. Whoever would come close to him. And notice what it says. It must believe that he exists. It must believe that he is. I would even add that he is who he said he is as he's revealed himself through scripture. And notice, and, and not only that, but that he rewards those who and this is big to me, he rewards those who seek him. This really struck me as I read this this week because I love this passage. I love Hebrews chapter 11, but I don't know I've ever really seen it this way before. God rewards those who seek him. In other words, God doesn't merely want your obedience. It doesn't say he rewards those who have the right rituals or he rewards those who try hard or he rewards those who accomplish a lot or he rewards those who overcome a certain amount of sin or do the right things or say the right things or avoid the wrong things. It says that he rewards those who seek him, who seek a relationship with him who seek the person of God, who seek the Father, not just a way to heaven, not just a religion, but you're seeking God the Father, the person. You want a relationship with him. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Matthew chapter 8. I want to read a story for you about faith, and this just kind of to set a context for us for the series. It's a great story, and in fact, I want to focus on verse 5, but before we get there, I want to read the first four verses because they set kind of a great context for us. Great passage on faith. It's talking about Jesus. He's going around the countryside. He's ministering. He's healing. He's working miracles. He's teaching. And it says in verse one, now when he came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. So people have, have uh, heard about Jesus working miracles. Some people have seen him work miracles. They know he's driving out demons and he's feeding people and he's healing people. And when he teaches, people are like, wow, this guy does, no one else teaches like this guy. He would teach and people aren't like, is he almost done? Is he on point three? What, you know, when's lunch? Are we gonna, they're none of that stuff. They're like, this guy could just, I could listen to this guy all day long. And great crowds are following him. Now a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Now, 
leprosy back then, this was a disease of the skin that would slowly eat away at your body and it would basically be the death of you because there was no cure for it back then. So if, if you had leprosy, a couple things happened. First of all, um, if you were a child and you came down with leprosy, you were taken away from your family. If you were a, a father, uh, you were taken away from your family. You weren't able to live with your family anymore. You were separated from them. You were put in another community with other people who were lepers. You were separated from society. You weren't able to go, you know, you couldn't go up to, you, you couldn't go to Starbucks and hang out and have some coffee. You had to stay away from people. If you're walking down a road and somebody's coming the other way, you had to yell that you were unclean so they wouldn't get anywhere near you. You were separated from society. So not only was it a death sentence physically, but just socially and in your life in so many ways, you were, you were ostracized, you were put off to the side. You weren't supposed to come up and have interaction with people who didn't have leprosy, but this man with leprosy came and knelt before Jesus. So he's pretty brash of him. He wasn't supposed to do that. And he said to him, and I love this, he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So the guy's going, he's thinking, there's no problem with you, Jesus. I mean, I know you can do it. I just don't know if you're in a healing mood today or if you're feeling good or if you're not. Did you, maybe you had your coffee or you didn't or you're just annoyed with people. But if you're in a good mood and you're in a healing mood and, and willing, I know that you can do it. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man, okay, which you did not do. He didn't touch people who had leprosy. He stayed away from them. But he touches the man, which again just tells you so much about Jesus. He touches the man and he says, I am willing. Be clean. And immediately the man was cured of his leprosy. And obviously you know, people are like, wow. And it just happens right there in front of them. And they're probably like, wow, that's really cool. You know, and I give it an eight. That's really an eight. And uh, obviously this guy has a lot of faith, right? He's got a lot of faith. He, he broke the rules. He knelt down before Jesus, puts it all on the line. And there's, a, there's a possibility of rejection, but the man is healed. Great faith. And yet as great as his faith is, the next story just kind of makes his story pale in comparison. Notice what happens in the next verse. Now, Jesus had entered Capernaum, so he's traveling around and he's, he's ministering. And a centurion came to him asking for help. So a centurion was a Roman. And if you know anything about this, this period of history, you have the Jews and you have the Romans. And the Romans, if you're a Jew, the Romans are the bad guys. They're conquerors, they're the occupiers, they're the godless lawmakers, taxers, oppressors. That's who they are. This man is not only a Roman, but he's a Roman soldier. So he represents the government of Rome, the power of Rome. He's a Roman soldier. He is a centurion, which means that not only is he a soldier, but he's a soldier who has a hundred soldiers underneath him, underneath his authority. So he has the power of the Roman Empire behind him. And he's got a hundred men who work underneath him, who do his, his bidding, who do his will. Now, we don't really know how this man knew about Jesus. Maybe he'd heard about him. Maybe he had a friend who heard him teach. Maybe he had heard him teach. Maybe he'd seen him work a miracle. But here's what we know. Somehow, in some way, this man had developed a conviction about Jesus. He had developed a trust in Jesus or a faith in Jesus. And it all kind of spills out. In verse 6, he says this, Lord, I have a servant and my servant lies at home, and my servant is paralyzed and in terrible suffering. So this centurion, understand just 
socially back then, politically the way that, that things worked back then, that power-wise and, and, and uh, you know, in terms of prestige, the centurion would have been way up here and Jesus, being a Jew, would have been way down here in Roman society, right? So, so this is kind of the way it works. But this powerful centurion comes up to Jesus and he, he begs for help. Now, this tells us a lot about this guy because back then, if you were Roman and you had servants, basically, they were like pieces of property to you. They were, a, it was a possession and you could do anything that you wanted with them. And this guy shows this unusual amount of concern. He's, he's concerned for his servant. He's worried about his servant so much so that he's willing to go out and try to find someone who can help his servant. So he comes to this, this Jewish rabbi and this, this, this centurion, this proud centurion comes in humility. And he's asking Jesus for help. It's really unusual. In fact, it doesn't, it doesn't say what you might expect where he goes to Jesus and says, hey, and it kind of whispers, hey, is there any way we can meet in the back room because I need to ask you for something? Okay, right there in front of everyone and maybe some of the soldiers are there and he humbles himself and he asks for help. And, and notice what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, he said, I will go and heal him. I'll come to your house and I'll, I'll heal this guy. Now, Again, you have to kind of put yourself in the place of, of that context and imagine if, if you were a Jew back then because the reaction of a Jew would have been, okay, wait a minute, Jesus. All right, first of all, this guy's not a Jew. This guy's the enemy. This guy's not religious. He was not born into the right, you know, ethnicity. Uh, he, he doesn't have the right vocation. He doesn't go to temple. He doesn't obey the law. And yet, Jesus talks with him, and, and Jesus accepts an invitation to come to his house and, and go under his roof, which again, a Jew would not do. And he says, I'll, I'll help you. I'll help you out. It reveals so much, doesn't it, about the heart of Jesus towards those who are lost and those who are, are sinners. And in verse 8, this is where the story gets really great. Now w- watch what happens here. This is, this is kind of the theology underneath all this. So the guy comes and he asks Jesus, would you heal my servant? And it's easy to kind of look and go, wow, that guy had a lot of faith. But there's, there's some theology underneath all of this. And, and here's where it comes out in verse 8. Now the centurion said to Jesus, Lord, I do not, notice this, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. I don't deserve it. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. So here's what this man says. He goes, okay, Jesus, I know that in our society, I'm up here and you're down here, but I figured out the reality because I've been watching you and listening to you. And I, what I've realized is it's actually like this. You are way out of my league. All right. I don't deserve to have you come into my house. I don't even deserve to have you talk with me. All right. So I don't need you to come to my house. I don't need you to do that for me. I know that you have the power. You could just heal my servant wirelessly. You know, you could just kind of do that thing that you do and, and he could be healed and, and, and everything would be great. And, and notice what he says next. This is so revealing. He goes, and here's why I know all this. Here's why. Because I myself have a, am a man under authority. So he's like, I, I have Rome and Rome tells me what to do. I have bosses and they tell me what to do. Um, I'm a man under authority with soldiers under me. Now, here's how it works, Jesus. I can tell one soldier, go, and he goes. And I can say to the other one, come, and he comes. And I can say to the servant over here, you know, I really need lunch, so could you go to Subway and get me a BLT and, you know, bring that back to me? And I can say to these servants, I need you to go to the next city. There's a guy who hasn't paid his taxes. I need to rough him up a little bit and get some money and come back. And, you know, and could you get, you know, get some lodging ready for me over there? In fact, what the guy says is, you know, Jesus, I could actually do my entire job from a chair. 
I could just sit in a chair and collect taxes and have lunch and take a nap. And I could get everything done because I have authority over 100 men. And they will do my bidding. And what he's saying is this. He's like, Jesus, I've been watching you. And here's what I've noticed. You have authority. But it's, your authority isn't just over, over people. I mean, I just have authority over people. And my authority isn't even really based on me. It's based on who's behind me. But you, you have authority. Apparently, you have authority over like the human body. You have authority over, over leprosy. That's crazy. You have uh, authority over illness. You have authority over the weather. I've heard about that, you know. And, and, and fall and the clouds are coming. You just go, be gone, you know. Uh, you have authority to, you know, m- manipulate food so it multiplies. And you know what he's saying is this. It's one thing to have authority over people because of somebody else. But that's not you, Jesus. You have authority over the physical world. You have authority over the, over the spiritual world. You can just tell sickness, hey, sickness, take a hike, and sickness takes a hike. You can tell leprosy, it's time to be done, and leprosy is done. You can tell the weather, it's time to calm down, and the clouds, you know, break, and, 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 and that's what'll happen. Now, when I read this, this passage, which I just kind of mulled over this summer, thinking to myself, so amazing that this centurion gets what we often don't. That Jesus has all authority. I think he was pretty clear. He was pretty concise about that. And this man actually believed it. The question is, do we? In verse 10, it goes on and it says this. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished. This is the only place where this word is used, this strong word to describe how Jesus responds to somebody like this. He was astonished, and he said to the people following him, so he looks around at the disciples and the religious leaders, and he says to them, now I'm going to tell you something amazingly true, right? I tell you the truth, or some of your translations, he says, verily, verily, right? I say unto you, I have not found anyone in Israel, okay? And that includes all of you guys standing here, right? I haven't found anyone in Israel with such great faith. It was like a real slap in the face to the religious leaders and, and even the disciples who were there. Jesus is saying, I am astonished at this man. This man is amazing to me. Notice what he was, he was not amazed by this centurion's rule keeping or his religion. Jesus wasn't like, wow, I'm astonished at this man. Did you see the way that guy didn't commit adultery? Isn't that amazing? I mean, that's not what this is about. It's not his rule keeping. Instead, Jesus is amazed at this man's faith or this man's trust in Jesus. And to the religious leaders of his day were standing right there and listening to that. This was a, a slap in the face because these were people who had spent their whole life thinking that the way that you are acceptable to God is through your behavior and through your accomplishments and through your training and through the family you were born into and through basically through working hard to earn God's favor. This man comes along with us. None of that stuff. And Jesus goes, now this guy... This guy is the bomb. This is the guy that you guys all ought to be emulating. What Jesus was impressed by was this man's faith. And the Bible is clear from beginning to end. What honors God is not your promises. What honors God are not your efforts, as great as they may be. It's not your accomplishments that make you right with God. It's not your church attendance as, as helpful as that may be to your spiritual growth. What honors God is when you trust him. 
when you have faith in him. And I just want to be really clear about this. I'm not talking about faith in faith. I'm talking about faith in God, in the person of God. And I say that because I'm just telling you there's a lot of There's a lot of teaching you can hear on the radio now and people you can hear on TV and books that you can read in the Christian bookstore and they should not be there, but they're basically books that teach faith and faith. What they say is if you learn the right, if you pray the right formula or you live the right way then and, and, and you do the right thing, if you have faith, you can, faith is actually something that, that you can use to manipulate God and get what you want from God. And this is, this is like the exact opposite of that. Man, that is so not the gospel. That is so antithetical to everything that Jesus taught and is taught in the Old Testament and Paul taught in the New Testament. What this teaches is that we need to have faith in the person of God. I mean, imagine if you had that kind of confidence in God. How would that kind of absolute confidence in God impact your relationships? How would it impact your marriage if you really, really had confidence in God? How would it impact your job? How would it impact uh, the things that you're anxious about today? How would it impact your marriage, your your relationship with your kids? Would it impact your relationship with your enemies? And would it change the way that you go to school tomorrow if you really, really trusted God at work and, and, and in your schedule? Imagine having that kind of confidence. So here's the question. If, if faith is so important, if trusting God is so important, is there anything that you and I can do to impact the faith in our life? Or is it just like God gives us what we have and that's just what we have to work with and that's all there is? Over the years, what I've noticed is I've noticed a, a, a pattern. I've noticed that there are some people, and I, I noticed this when I first became a Christian. Became a Christian, got in a, started hanging around Christians at school, started hanging around Christians at church, and here's what I noticed. There were, there were some people that were doing some things in their life and, and those things that they were doing seemed to somehow be fueling their faith. I noticed there were some people whose faith was growing faster and growing stronger than others, and I began to notice some patterns. In other words, what I noticed was there were some, some things that we can do in response to what God is doing in us, in which we partner with God and we can fuel that faith. As we respond to God, I noticed that when I got into Bible college and I started hanging around some godly professors and other people, I started seeing these same patterns in those people. I saw it as a youth pastor. I've seen it in the years here at Gateway that again, there are, there are some patterns and some things that we can do to cooperate with God. And those things can have an impact on our faith. So that's what this series is about. I want to talk about five ways to fuel your faith. And, you know, this is not a comprehensive list. There might be seven or or 25 or there might be three. But these are five things that I've noticed over the years. And not only have I noticed them, but many people have noticed them. There's a lot of churches whose ministries are all built around these five things. We've done that as a church. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you an outline for the series on the back of your notes. You can fill it in. You'll know exactly where we're going. You can go home, study, prep, and come on the weekends like just ready to go for it. In fact, you could probably get up here and preach it for me. All right, five things, and they're not really in order uh, of importance, but there is a reason for this order, and we'll talk about that in the weeks to come. Here's the first thing that God can use to fuel our faith, and that is providential relationships. God puts particular people in our lives 
because he wants to use them to fuel our faith, to help us grow. And my guess is that if I gave you a moment, all of you could probably think of a few people that providentially, you didn't do it, God brought them into your life, and they fueled your faith. They said some things and did some things and impacted you in a particular way. I've heard so many stories over the years where people say something like this. So I was going through life and I was trying to follow Jesus. I was cruising along and then one day I met this guy or met this girl or this professor or this coworker or this boss or this pastor, whatever. And it was something about them and just the way that they impacted my life. I mean, it was providential. God used them to fuel my faith. So we're going to talk about providential relationships. The second one is private disciplines. Uh, For some of you, you know what I mean when I talk about this, that this is not about um, doing devotionals and praying each day a certain formula so you can check off a box and God will be happy with you. This is about realizing that, that you want to have alone time with God. That you don't get up in the morning and read your Bible because that's what Christians do. You do it because you want to hear it from God. You want to be with God. You don't pray, you don't fast to gain favor with God. You do it because you love God and you want to trust him and you want to spend time with him. So we're going to talk about things like devotionals and we're going to talk about prayer. We're going to talk about fasting. That's going to be super fun. We're not just going to talk about fasting, by the way, but we'll get to that. And here's what I've noticed. As you practice these private disciplines, God can use them to fuel your faith. The third thing we're going to talk about is personal ministry. And I'm, what I'm talking about here is when we move from the place where we sit on the couch and say, wow, God, I mean, I heard they really need help in middle school ministry. And, you know, God, I hope you raise up some people who are dumb enough to volunteer for that and get involved. This is where you move from that to going, God, I'm going to do it. God, I'm going to stand up. God, I know they need help in kids' church. I'm going to go over there. You know, God, I, I'm going to use my gifts. I'm going to stand up and not just think about this. I'm going to get involved in ministry. I'm not just going to hope that they get enough people that fill a team to go to Nicaragua. Next year, I'm going to stand up and, and be part of that. I tell you, when you decide that you're not only going to have God work in you, but you desire to have God work through you and to bless other people, and you're going to follow Him and the way He's made you for that, you will find a blessing and your trust will grow in God. Uh, just as a personal example, even after all these years, every weekend when I get up here and preach, for me, this is, just, this is one of those times, it doesn't matter how much I've studied and how much I've prepared and, and, and how confident I am. I go through the same thing before every service, whether we have two or three services. I do this before every single service. Every weekend I preach, I go into my office, I close my door, I get on my knees, and that's my way of saying, God, I've studied and I've prepped and I know none of that is enough. And none of that is enough, and I'll be wasting your time, and I'll be wasting your time and my time if I get up this weekend and it's just me. God, I just kind of need to vacate myself right now and allow your spirit to come in and be the one who controls me. Just as you've controlled the study time, now you need control what happens in that room. And I always walk up here every weekend in a place of weakness. I feel it. I never walk up here on the weekend like, I can't wait to just, I have some really great stuff to tell you guys. I'm gonna blow you away. That never, I always walk up here and go, oh man, God, if you don't pull this together, nothing good's gonna happen right now. But here's the great thing about it. Whenever I do that, I find that God is trustworthy, that I can count on God when I step out. We'll, we'll talk about that and, and how it relates to your life. The fourth thing is practical biblical teaching. Um, there's enough room in that line, but practical biblical teaching. And again, here's 
stories I hear from people sometimes. I grew up in the church. I went to church. I went to Bible study. I went to Sunday school. I took the notes and all that stuff. And I got a lot of information. But then one day I heard a guy teaching and he taught information. He taught good biblical theology. But then he gave application. He didn't just tell me what to believe. He told me how it related to my life. He didn't just tell me what a marriage is like, but he showed me how to do that, how to relate to that, how to follow God. And it was that application that started to feel that that changed something for me. And I walked away on the weekends not only knowing the truth of God, but I knew how to apply it. And I was encouraged to do that, and that fueled faith in God. And here's the fifth one that we're going to talk about, and that is pivotal circumstances. There are times in life, there are things that are going to happen to you in life um, that are going to absolutely shake you to the core. And you're going to have to make a choice in those moments. What, how are you going to respond to those? Because what I'm going to tell you is God is always there in waiting. In fact, we're going to say he's doing more than waiting. Uh, for some people, it's having a child or losing a child or getting a job or losing a job or someone gets sick or, uh, sick or whatever that is. But what we're going to discover, in fact, what we're going to discover in this passage that we look at, and I'm really looking forward to this message, is that we have this picture sometimes that God sits on the sidelines you know, waiting for his play and he's watching your life and he kind of sits there and waits and waits and then something really bad happens and God jumps up and he's going to, you know, jump into action. And what we're going to look at in scripture is the fact that God is, like God is not that passive. God is way more active in your life, even in difficult circumstances. Why? Because he wants to stretch your faith and he wants to teach you that you can trust him. So we're going to talk about that as well, pivotal circumstances. Now, why is this list so important? Well, think about it this way. If you're a parent and you love your kids, you, you, you care about your kids, and you want your kids to grow up to love God and to know him personally, if you see this list and you realize that, you know what, these are five things that, these are contexts that tend to fuel the growth of people. If you figure that out, then as a parent, you're going you're gonna to be looking for ways to help your kids with some providential relationships. Most of you, you do that anyways, whether you know it or not. God uses you as parents, right? Aren't you always looking for, for godly people to bring around your kids, especially as they get into the teenage years? Aren't you trying to foster those good godly relationships? Because you know the power of relationships, and, and you're going to try to raise your kids to have some, some private disciplines with God. Why would you do that? Because you know there is a potential, there is a power there. You're going to look for ways to get your kids involved in, in personal ministry and, and practical teaching, and you're going to look for ways to leverage those pivotal circumstances. And the same thing goes for you in your own life. If you want to experience the abundant life, not just get to heaven when you die, but if you want to experience abundant life right now, that comes from not just, not just saying my goal in life is to just survive so I can go to heaven. But you decide, I want to know God personally and deeply. I want to know his heart and his agenda. And I want God to work in me and through me. And I want to know his power and his peace. I want to learn to trust God. Because you will never really truly be set free to the life that God has for you until you learn to surrender control of your life, and trust God. I thought that maybe the best way for us to close um, this weekend is to take a few minutes to uh, remember what it is that Jesus did for us that starts this whole thing, and to, to remember what the Lord did for us on the cross through communion. And if you are here and you have placed your trust your faith in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross and you're not counting on religion or ritual or, or, or being good enough to make you right with God, but you're trusting 
and the work of Christ, then I would invite you to take part in communion with us. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us, and uh, then the guys are going to come forward, and I'm going to give you a little context on how all this fits together.